Have a look at his buttocks. That's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> Except it is. <laughs> not meant to be. Normally, blood in a dead person goes to the lowest points. There should be marks of lividity, right? Do you see any purplish marks on his butt? No. Careful you don't puncture your suit. Clotted blood. Powdered. I'll be damned. No wonder they didn't bleed. It's clotted throughout the entire system. Five quarts of blood turned to powder. In theory, I suppose a single organism could do it. But, in fact, there isn't a single organism on Earth. You mean, there didn't used to be. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowley. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 43, which is Cole's choice. What did you choose? I have chosen The Andromeda Strain from 1971, directed by Robert Wise, based on the novel by Michael Crichton, and starring Arthur Hill, David Wayne, Kate Reed, and James Olsen, with sterling production design from Boris Levin. Levin and Wise did some notable work together on more than one occasion. One of your favorites, The Sound of Music. One of your not-so-favorites, West Side Story. True and true. And a couple of others that are really big favorites of ours, including Anatomy of a Murder and The Last Waltz. Do you want me to get into The Last Waltz right now? No. Though? No. Okay. But it's a good enough excuse as any to talk about music credits for this. I want to point out the music and what I think of as the soundscape for this. It's pretty phenomenal. The music is credited to Gil Malay, and I was looking back through his hundreds of credits on IMDb, and I've seen probably most of them because it was a ton of TV and TV movies from the 80s that I think I watched every single one of them when I was a kid. I don't know if he's also key in the sound design. I'm just going to throw his name out there but whomever created it, it's stellar work. Oddly enough, though, I forget every time until I watch this that Robert Wise directed it. Hmm. It seems like such an odd thing within his body of work, at mm-hmm. least to me. Am I way off base on that one? I don't know. I think of his body of work as really varied, and to me it bears a lot of the hallmarks of his stuff in that it is very meticulous. True. Great point. Well, The Andromeda Strain is about a team of four scientists who are sequestered in a multi-level laboratory hidden beneath the desert who are investigating a deadly organism of extraterrestrial origin, and the clock is ticking. Now, I don't know if we've mentioned it too much on the show so far, but you love disaster movies. I do. And of the disaster genre, the sub-genre that I like the most are plague films. Are you the same, or are there other things that you prefer... Huge natural disasters versus man-made. What is your favorite? My favorite is anything involving nature. Okay. So the natural world wreaking havoc. And then the sub-sub of that is anything involving water. So this one technically should tick a lot of boxes for you. It's a procedural, for one thing, and you love that process stuff. The thing that they're battling is natural, extraterrestrial, but a natural organism... And the finale includes the Pacific Ocean. In addition to that, we're at the tail end of our atomic age. 
it's actually sort of a different kind of atomic age because it was written around the time of the moon landing. So it's all of those atomic fears come to life because we've actually brought back artifacts that we're now able to study. I also say technically ticks off all your boxes that you should like because I don't think this one quite hits you the way I wanted it to. In the words of my mom, <laughs> Deborah, I told her we were doing this and she said, I don't like that movie. <laughs> and I said, I don't really either. I should like it. There are things that I absolutely love about it that are incredibly memorable, that are great to look at, great to listen to. As a whole, even though we just watched this again fairly recently, I can't remember huge chunks of it. I have to closely read through the Wikipedia or the IMDb analysis of it to remember what happened and why. And all of those boxes that you mentioned, I'm going to possibly systematically destroy those as we We'll uncheck go them through. one at a time. <laughs> I don't want to say that I dislike it, hate it, think it's a terrible movie. For some reason, well, actually not for some reason. I'm going to talk about the reasons. It leaves me cold. Okay. But it's your choice. Yeah. So let's get into it. Well, it doesn't leave me cold. Well, maybe specifically because it does is why I like it. I should clarify. I totally understand what you're saying. It's the sterility of it and that meticulousness of Robert Wise that I really love that I think is perfect for this movie. It's one of my all-time favorites. It's in my top 10 sci-fi films list and will always be. Now, I don't know if you saw it around this time, but way back when A&E was in its infancy it would pick a couple of movies and show them over and over and over again, which is why I watched Love and Death probably 10 times. Mm -hmm. This was one of those, and I still didn't get around to it then. And you would have thought <laughs> I would have, and I just kept avoiding it. Also, like the other one that they showed, which was Apples Aren't the Only Fruit. They had a odd, odd selection of things they had the rights to show. Well, I guarantee I was sitting down watching it every time. And I love it right off the bat because it starts by telling one of my favorite lies. This is a true story to immediately make you uncomfortable and afraid. And it establishes that with very specific detail. So I'm right there with you. I'm in. The way the action is portrayed, it's broken down into what happens over the course of four individual days from the discovery of the satellite that brought the organism back to Earth until the problem is solved. We start with first day, and this is where Michael Crichton excels for me. He establishes that timeline tension. You mentioned earlier, the clock is ticking, and we know it is. So right away, my heart is beating. Well, day one basically revolves around the discovery of the organism and then the team assembly of the scientists. And it begins in Piedmont, New Mexico, population 68, or now two Minus 66. Because every living thing apparently has dropped dead in mid-stride. I talked about the soundscape before, and we are introduced to this new world with music that sounds like a teletype fuzzed into fear to me. That's what it recalls to my mind. And the thing that I love most about this intro is that we constantly have objects talking to us, not people. We have the human voices through these objects. 
So immediately you feel disconnected from the outside world. We're all locked in these closed rooms separate from each other. Another thing of interest in this establishment of the world is the use of a lot of tight close-ups or two shots that to me don't suggest that there is a body outside of what's happening in the moment. And it also seems like people are really interchangeable. Well, you said a couple of things in there that I think I want to expand upon that I really enjoyed about this. When Robert Wise started his career, he started as a very young man in the sound and music editing department at RKO. And I think that really shows up here at the very beginning, especially. At first, I wondered, did he have a huge, long career in radio, a la Orson Welles, because of his skill with his stuff? But then I realized, no, his first assignments were working on film and not radio. But you could have fooled me, because like you said, you are hearing things coming from objects and not people and how it provides you with this disconnected feeling. And my favorite thing that illustrates that in this opening, when we experience the two soldiers who are recovering the satellite, shout out to your favorite Counting Crows record. It is actually. (laughs) It's still missing. It's somewhere in another state anyway. You hear them find it. You don't actually see them encounter the object. You don't actually see what happens to them. You hear it broadcast over the speaker as they are transmitting from their van. And it is ten times more terrifying because everything that's happening is left to our imagination. And you are absolutely right about the score slash sound design in this opening section. You know how much I love noise. I could just sit and listen to feedback and static. It's my favorite thing. It soothes me. And I love the opening of this film. Or actually throughout the film. It's really special. Those are all the sounds we hear. All of this dissonance and static and electricity. It's one of a number of reasons why I really like it. So something has gone terribly wrong. And from here we launch into the sequence where they are assembling our team of scientists. Starting with Dr. Stone. Dr. Stone is played by Arthur Hill. I have a very special connection to Arthur Hill. (laughs) Let me guess. (laughs) Go ahead. Murder, she wrote. Set in Cabot's Cove. (laughs) Ha ha. Call back to the last episode. He was in the pilot episode of Murder, She Wrote. He actually comes back later. But I'll save that for my Murder, She Wrote podcast whenever I get that off the ground. Dr. Stone is in the middle of a party. A society do. Definitely. His wife is the daughter of a senator. So we're talking about... Connected. Yeah. High-level people. He is pretty unceremoniously taken from the party. He clearly understands, though, that something very serious has happened because he gets in with the military folks, no questions asked. It's obviously very serious because his wife, Senator's daughter, like you mentioned, that means nothing to anyone. That is worth nothing in finding out what's going on. She and her father, in this case, most likely have no pull. So this is top secret classified. They're in communications lockdown. We next go to David Wayne. My favorite. He plays Dr. Charles Dutton. His family life, I think, is a little bit more earthy, a little bit more rural even. It also, I think, has to do with him being of the most advanced age. He's much more settled into his life. He's essentially taken out of retirement Mm -hmm. for this assignment. Now, one of the things we're going to touch on a little bit throughout this, probably, is the depiction of the women in the film, and it starts right away with this. You've got a very distinct difference between how you see 
Stone's wife portrayed. She, to me, seems very uptight, high-strung. And then you've got the fussy but understanding wife and daughter of Dr. Dutton, who are lightly mocking him about this cloak-and-dagger, quote-unquote, adventure that he's about to go on. Do you think that there is a unifying thing, though, in how each of these women are portrayed in relation to what is going on? I would say, at most, they are secondary Mm. to the problem. I think of Dr. Stone's wife as being almost an accessory. She certainly has a hairdo (laughs) (laughs) and is wearing fancy clothes because they have a fancy party. Dr. Dutton's family, they're in their night clothes because it's late at night. They're all living in the same house that is much more of a country house, country living. I'll tell you why I like David Wayne so much in this. I just realized it's because he's the W.C. Fields of the movie. He has the fussy wife who drives him crazy, but he ultimately loves in the end, and the daughter who truly understands him. Good point. It seems like a nice family life. Yeah. Well, the reason I mention it at this juncture is because we are about to meet Dr. Levitt. My favorite character. And I think the way she is portrayed throughout is significant. Especially because in the book, Dr. Levitt is a man, for one thing. Yes, so they changed it for the film. And Dr. Levitt is portrayed by Kate Reed, also a fascinating actress to me. And visually, the change is very obvious. This is the first time where we have someone in full shot. So Dr. Levitt is portrayed full body. We see more of her life and the other people in her circle, as we did with David Wayne. This time it's her professional circle. Significant, I think, immediately. Because to me, I'll tell you what this reads as. She is married to her job and going based on how things were in 1971 with the frumpy outfit, the glasses, the hairdo. I'm saying coded lesbian is what I am thinking they are trying to put across. I would agree as well. Or at least asexual. Yes, not a desirable woman. Or a woman with desires. She's very passionate or grumpy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But exhibiting no sexuality. I specifically said desirable because I was thinking about the other portrayals of women that happen later on in the film Mm -hmm. where they are hit on multiple times by multiple characters. She's also clearly sick or getting through something. And for me, the code for that, whether this is a male or female character, is weakness. Our last piece of this puzzle, we see a surgeon literally about to cut into a body. We don't yet know, but we find out in a moment, he's Dr. Hall. Played by James Olsen, one of my favorite Columbo guest stars. Really? Kate Reed is one of my favorite Columbo guest stars. Actually, I'll almost use that as my recommendation later. <laughs> well, they pluck him directly out of the operating theater and literally almost instantly set him and Dr. Stone down in the alien landscape of Piedmont, New Mexico. Okay, so we're entering day two, which is basically their orientation and descent into the laboratory, which begins by revisiting this dead town. Buzzards literally circling the town, which presents a potential problem. Definitely. They talk about the danger of vultures spreading the disease out of this dead area into inhabited areas because they can fly out anywhere. 
one thing they do know, apparently, because of this, that it is a germ, not radioactivity. It is a space germ. I love this whole sequence. I love that great shot as they are exiting the helicopter. I love how isolated they are, how the only thing that keeps this from being the moon is basically there's a church right in the middle of the street. Because even though this is clearly filmed outdoors, there's something that happens that it looks almost unreal. Hoax? Like the moon landing? (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking more that they're able to actually achieve this feeling that something was there and now it's not. A town was alive and now it's not. The part that I love most are the tons and tons of great close-ups of the dead. Mm -hmm. These people essentially died instantly from whatever this catastrophic event was. Eyes are still open. They're still clothed. They're still in the process of doing whatever activity they were doing. Carrying groceries, sitting in the barber chair. There are a few exceptions, however. They do discover a couple of instances where people had enough time to commit suicide. They talk about most died instantly, but a few had time to go quietly nuts. Those, to me, are my favorite, grisly as they are, images in the whole thing. Specifically, the woman hanging in the stairwell. And the cat. Without even seeing her face, I definitely get exactly that point that they are trying to put across. That whatever has happened to everyone has inspired true madness and despair in the few that were left behind. So as they go around town in search of this satellite, we see these wonderful split-screen shots and panels. It sort of feels like comic book panels to me. And I like the way it forces me to simultaneously consider a lot of things all at one time. And again, right here, we have another instance of the depiction of women being different. As you go throughout the town and you come upon all these corpses... The one it lingers on the longest is the girl who is naked from the waist up with her little peace medallion. Is that the film's male gaze? Or do you think that it is specifically trying to put across that Hall is the one who is looking at her longer? Because there are a couple of instances where I think it definitely stresses, don't forget Hall is a heterosexual bachelor. I don't know the answer to that. There are several instances, as you mentioned, continuously where he adopts this, to me, gross role (laughs) of almost to the point of sleaziness. However, it is implicitly understood and reinforced by other characters. So if everyone's in on it, it's not sleazy, at least according to them, I think. According to 1971 rules. Yes. So I don't know if it's his or the films. Is there a difference? Hmm. To me, I read it as specifically them trying to tell us something about him. And coincidentally, they get to show you a naked woman a little bit longer than everyone else. I think one of the things that puts people off, maybe, who are coming to this trying to enjoy it as a more standard sci-fi thriller, is just how much time it takes. It is very patient throughout the film, but especially in this opening section, they spend a lot of time quietly isolated just walking around looking at things here. And that's the thing I love about it. I feel like it came in the wake of 2001, where there was a shift from rocket ships and atomic monsters to more realistic environments, humans being human, 
just happens to be in space. And I don't think this could have been made or at least done as well if not for the significant success of 2001. Quite literally, the connection between the two is with Douglas Trumbull, who did the special effects for both of those films. I also enjoy the time and detail that it invests. I just wish the ending was (laughs) delivered with that much care. Well, where it ticks certain boxes for you, it ticks the slow cinema box for me, which is a big plus in my book. So slowly, ever so slowly, they discover what they came for. They find the satellite that has brought this organism back to Earth, and it is in the town doctor's office. And that's the scene that we play in our opening, (laughs) which I chose specifically because I got to say but twice. Yeah, you did. Jerk. You got to do the great ending line, though. I did. And you delivered that thing with aplomb. You mean there didn't used to be. You give me chills. So here is where we find out what physical effects that this organism has had on the people, turning their blood completely into dust. And we also find out that there are a couple of survivors. We have a baby and an old man who is, I would say, raving. Yeah. (laughs) Raving. Anyone armed with a cleaver could probably be filed under that category. And he comes out screaming, you did it, assuming that Whatever happened, these people, it was a man-made disaster of some kind. They managed to subdue him, and so Stone, Hall, the baby, the old man, and the satellite are taken away in the helicopter again. Taken to Project Wildfire. In the meantime, the politicos are discussing what is to be done with this town. Dr. Stone, who is clearly the person in charge of this team, and he's the one who has created this solution for this potential problem as you do at this level, thinking through all of these scenarios and what would we do in preparation, in readiness, always for the worst to happen. Dr. Stone suggests that the president has to drop a nuclear bomb on this town before the infection can spread. However, there are a lot of other forces at work here. The president is ultimately going to plan to postpone that decision And in the meantime, have the National Guard cordon off the area. The most significant thing for me in this whole exchange is when Dr. Robertson ends the entire conversation by saying it should have been left up to the scientists. And this in concert with the fact that the town doctor was the one who unleashed this thing sets up this conflict for me about whether or not this movie is actually pro-science or anti-science. Or does it have more to do with the folly of human beings? I think at least in Michael Crichton's worldview, he has this consistent MO, which is that nothing man-made is foolproof. Mm -hmm. No solution we come up with, nothing that we build, nothing that we create can stand forever. There's always going to be some crack somewhere. I think it's really interesting, though, to see in this exchange between the White House politicos and the team at wildfire, there are people who are arguing for a politically expedient view, but for the most part, they're actually trying to reason through what is the best way to handle this outside of politics. And the fact that all of the members on our team and the other people who staff wildfire are technicians or doctors or scientists of some level. So this world is predominantly populated by scientists, by men and women of science. The world that we see in the film. Yes. With only infrequent interjections from outside. 
and they both get it right and they get it wrong. So I don't think that there's a cut and dried answer. It's also quite startling in this day and age to even hear someone say it should have been left up to the scientists. But anyway. <laughs> okay, so we've recovered all the things that we need, including survivors, and now we are back at Wildfire, where the team is assembling all four together for the first time. It's a pretty neat facility. First, we see that awesome red curve hallway. Well, first, let's talk about the Department of Agriculture cover for it. Okay. I love that that is what they have chosen to put on top of this row upon row of crops. And it makes me reconsider every Oklahoma State University where I went to school, Department of Ag Econ test field all around Stillwater where the school was. And now I'm thinking, are there just dozens upon dozens of facilities buried deep underground? Me not knowing the whole time. This is Denver-level airport conspiracy theory now yes. in the back of my mind. Everything is a missile silo, right? Of if course. we were just to drive through <laughs> any part of the middle of the country, that's all it is. So we go through the cover of the agriculture department, and we start on level one. Like you mentioned, the red level, the sexy level. This is the Prince level. This is the egg-shaped chair with 8-track stereo inside level. This is the custom car show level. I think of it almost as the alien autopsy slash sex level somehow. No blood is going to show up on anything. No. Because it is fire engine red. Would it make you insane to work in that environment? 100%. What would also make me insane in that level is in the control room where it's just banks of lights that clearly it's for design. Nobody knows what those different lights could possibly mean. It's just for effect. I beg to differ. Okay. Having just been to Johnson Space Center, I don't want to think that everyone at Mission Control didn't know what 80% of those buttons did. But we saw those buttons and they had actual words on them. These are just lights. Your mom's just lights. I guess so. <laughs> really, the whole thing just sounds like beep, boop, 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 beep, boop, boop. <laughs> so we're beginning this orientation and descent process where they have to be more and more decontaminated as they are headed toward the bottom, cleanest level to work on this space germ. Kate Reed, Levitt, gets separated from the men. As futuristic as it is, they still have separate men's and women's areas to go to get their disposable jumpsuits. And so while this preparation is going on, other things begin to happen. And first here, the other doctors are discussing Dr. Levitt when she's not around. Now, this doesn't happen to any other character. It's just for a moment, and I'm going to move on from there, but I wanted to point it out. Well, there are other issues that also crop up here that are specifically related to gender. The one that is most crucial is this odd man hypothesis. This is something that Michael Crichton created. And to his credit, as he does with everything, it seems incredibly real and justifiable. It's all about the idea that through this process of statistical analysis, that a single man is most equipped to make the most difficult decision. In this case, we know that the facility itself has been armed to self-destruct in the instance of a biological contamination. Dr. Hall is the single man, even though Dr. Levitt is a single woman, Dr. Hall is the single man is given the disarm key. He is the person entrusted to save the facility if he decides that that is the reasonable thing to do. 
the idea that anyone else with a family or a woman with or without a family would be so caught up in the emotional element that they wouldn't be able to make the right decision. Yeah, that's what I say. <laughs> They're all doctors. Now, They're know, all scientists. Right. I know it's 1971, so we give a little leeway because as we evolve, these ideas evolve. Not yet. Yeah, sorry. Go <laughs> Unless ahead. Unless you're the president. <laughs> Did you glean much from the data that was presented that demonstrated why your uterus would prevent you from making just as competent a decision as Dr. Hall. It was very reasonable. There was a sheet of paper that had writing on it with little percentages, and I thought, oh, well, sure. Of course. Yeah. Science. They figured it out. But again, like with Michael Crichton, we get convinced that we've learned something, that we've learned a new concept because it's talked to us to death that we think, oh, lots of words, done, okay, I'm with you. To be fair, that is the appeal of this film to me, in that so much of what they present seems like it might possibly be real. From the protocol that they have to follow to prevent contamination, to the very real experimentation that they are doing with the laboratory animals, all of it does what good science fiction frequently does. It makes me feel like uh, science fact, perhaps. Also, in this day and age, at really, at any point throughout history, I think you can start to see with this, it's understandable to think about how an established theory can be slightly adjusted, and then you have junk science. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be that far removed, and if you're not paying close enough attention, or there are not enough people questioning it, hey, that sounds reasonable. Or in the case of an entertainment, you suspend your disbelief enough to go along with it because it's exciting. And the world is created so specifically and in such loving detail and interesting detail that I definitely want to go along with it. Well, this is where Wise's meticulous nature comes in, I feel like. That is where the slow, sterile, quiet atmosphere that he builds throughout sells this to me. It has gravity it is much more severe, it is much more serious when it is not slam-bang sci-fi action thriller. So we've established this odd man hypothesis. We've established that Dr. Hall is the person carrying the key. He has to have it on him at all times. And another key point that comes up later, he is supposed to know where he is at any given moment because the location to disarm this nuclear weapon that would destroy this facility is in one place. Of course, it's guarded by daggers on pulleys and little cats <laughs> and whatever. It's in the most remote, difficult to get to destination. I think there are sharks with lasers. Well, that's only when things go completely wrong. Technically, he should be able to walk down a hall any direction in less than five minutes and find one of these boxes. Yeah, instead of the big obstacle course that's set up for him later on. And the one moment at the end where he doesn't know where he is, the one time is when this thing happens. Of course, thank you, Michael Crichton. Well, I think that's an older tradition than Michael Crichton. Wasn't it Chekhov that said, if there's a nuclear bomb in the first act, it has to go off in the third? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think he's also in a three-legged race at the same time. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of, uh, makes me a little crazy. But anyway, we'll get there later. Well, before he gets to his Battle of the Network Stars obstacle course, <laughs> they are 
gathered together speculating about what the possible source and I think more importantly intention of this organism is. Yes. Was it possibly launched from another planet to wipe us out? Or was it brought here in order to begin communication? We don't know. So they have to proceed on through the various decontamination levels. And I know I said level one, the red sexy level was the prince level, but I actually think this next decontamination chamber might be the most prince. I think of it a little bit more like the daft punk level (laughs) because they put on this crazy silver shiny helmet disco nightmare thing. And get all of their exterior skin flashed off. Right. This is a part where I think actually for the second time I wrote in highlight, what is any of this? <laughs> this is when the excessive level of fake science starts to get hmm. kind of hokey okay. to me. Look, I'm not saying that this is Los Alamos. I'm saying this is a pretty glam decontamination chamber. And I could be wildly off base because Michael Crichton really did do his research. So <laughs> maybe you're, you're I, probably I'm not the fine. helmet part. You're probably fine. But the explanation and the actual decontamination procedure, that, sure. as far as I know, they could probably, have been accurate. He probably exaggerated a little bit. It's probably not a shiny helmet. It's probably a red Zardoz diaper or something, maybe. <laughs> They don't take you out back and hose you down. Right. It's a little more complicated. Yeah. Okay, so we proceed on through the levels, and we're coming up on day three. Right here is where they take a break to get some rest, and we're all left to consider the question, Dr. Levitt, what's her problem? Right. (laughs) Apparently, her problem is she doesn't want to bang everybody, and specifically Dr. Hall. Something specifically that occurs to me here, though, is not just her, because Dutton is also similar, not as irascible, maybe, outwardly, but I think there's a bit of the older crankiness thing that Crichton, in talking about the novel, specifically said it was received as if it was the work of someone much older when he wrote it. That was editors' responses, critics' responses, the public's response to it, It seemed like the work of an older mind. Does that impatience with wasted time and all of that stuff that comes with age sometimes figure into either of those characters' personalities? Yes, and I want to answer that actually a little bit later. Okay. When the instance happens, so you'll have to remind me, when, again, they're talking about her behind her back, about possible barriers that she's had to face. Okay. Before we move on from that, though, it does strike me that Kate Reed in this film is my age. Mm. She was my age at the time that she made this. And she frequently throughout her career actually played much older characters. Oddly enough, Arthur Hill was 49 when he made the film, only three years older than I am now. And he feels like he is centuries older than me, not necessarily because of his expansive scientific experience, but just because everyone skews so much older than they actually are, except for David Wayne, who I think skews exactly how old he is. Do I just think of myself in the wrong way? Do I think I'm outwardly younger than I appear somehow? I think that is just generally what everyone does. I think everyone has an idea, an image of themselves in their head that is typically, at least once you're into middle advanced age, 
that's much younger than you actually are. As a kid, you picture yourself much older. Yes. But after you're, what, 25, 26, your image of yourself, in a lot of cases, I would guess, is probably a little to a lot younger than you actually are. So where do we go next, Methuselah? <laughs> How about the flip side of this gender coin? Okay. Which is... Speaking of, you know that um, even if I was as old as Arthur Hill or even beyond that, it just gets into Silver Fox territory. You suck. <laughs> yes. And I just feel more like Shirley Booth every day. <laughs> Thank you. It's going... <sighs> Jeez. You know I don't think that. That Shirley Booth thing is all on you. It's That's true. That's true. Nobody's shouting, hey, Shirley Booth, to me from the street. <laughs> I'm getting but... catcalled as Shirley Booth. <laughs> what you got going on underneath that apron, Hazel? Hey, Mr. B. <laughs> that's going to, two people are going to get are gonna that Are going to get one. that joke. Yeah. Anyway... Let's get serious. Okay. Can All we right. please? Yes. Okay. Please, Back on sir. Track. Speaking of people who need to get serious, Dr. Hall is woken up by a, to his word, luscious voice. Again, voice from a monitor mm. telling him to wake up. He's trying to hit on the voice. I would definitely prefer him to be serious. Um, the stakes are fairly high. The stakes are nuclear at this point. Why are you trying to get off with a voice right now? I do very specifically think that that is something that they are trying to remind us of. Like I mentioned when he is lingering on the topless dead body that they find. Because they do, in a couple of instances, show the male scientists nude together while they are going through this decontamination process. I really do think that they are trying to remind a mainstream audience, don't forget, red-blooded American hero... I don't think it's as crucial to the development of the character as it is to basic signals that they are trying to send the audience. I totally agree with you. There's no subtext to it. It is an established fact that this is the way the world works. And we're supposed to be on this guy's side. There's no debate about any of this. This is just life. And that's why it is annoying to me. Is it doubly annoying because we most often see him contrasted with Dr. Stone who is highly organized, very serious, and has no time for these sorts of games. Yes, and everyone else is actually trying to actively seek the solution as quickly as possible and stay on task, and he's just getting his dick out all over the place. <laughs> or trying to. Part of what they're trying to achieve, though, is to remind us that it is humanity that is what is worth saving because he's the one that fights most for the dignity of the baby and the old man. He is the one that insists that they remember these are not subjects. These are patients. These are other human beings. These are not things just to be experimented upon. So it's not all Plato's retreat. Well, it's more stuff I can put my dig into <laughs> is what he's thinking. No, I'm not disagreeing with you. It's the real world constantly tapping at the door that this is the way things are. This is what I'm supposed to go along with. And later when we have the nurse character, this is what I put up with every single day. Mm -hmm. Trying to save the world here. Yeah. Literally. And if I was wearing a shorter skirt, somehow somebody would be happier. Right. And literally putting their hand up it. Yes. So kidding aside, mm. they are actively working on this problem. 
they are actively working to diagnose how exactly the patients are alive. They're going to be using this glove box technology. That's when you put your hands into the safe facility, and which is on the other side of the glass wall in order to work on this thing in the capsule. And we've got tests happening on animals. Mm -hmm. So here's where I have a question. I don't even know if you have the answer. I certainly don't. I was really curious because this film carries that standard line at the end about no animals were harmed during the making of this film. We though see tests happening on mice and a monkey where they're clearly killed. The important point in the film is we learn that this germ is still alive and and airborne. airborne. So my question is, how do they earn that statement without killing the monkey? Because it looks as though the monkey dies. I can't imagine that the monkey is that good of an actor. No, the monkey is not that good of an actor. And they did have officials from the ASPCA on the set during the filming of these sequences what they did was they flooded the area with carbon dioxide. The animals are in a glass cage that's being pumped full of fresh oxygen. When they open the cage, it's overcome by the carbon dioxide. And immediately off screen, the AD in a scuba suit was standing there with oxygen to give to the animals. Wow, okay. Like you said, it's chilling. It, yeah, it's terrifying to watch because they are going through death throes. They are shuddering yes. and falling over. And it is not in any way an act. I don't know that they could still get away with stamping it that way now. But in 1971, you could, with the ASPCA standing right beside you, deprive the animal of oxygen and then resuscitate it. I think the other thing that makes that sequence with the rhesus monkey so terrifying is that it being in the isolation chamber, it makes no sound. It all happens to what is to you complete silence and it feels even more helpless because you do not hear a single thing okay so they continue with all this analysis they are trying to determine origin and growth rate and what this thing responds to they're putting it through all of these tests everything is in the computer and everyone is still behaving according to type you've got dr hall doing his i love the personal touch thing dr stone doing his tightly controlled and organized thing. Levitt still chafing against the establishment, butting up against the rules. And you've got Dutton, who is somewhat isolated from the group, working, to my mind, like a cranky old man would, wanting to be left alone and just get his stuff done. And Dr. Levitt and Dr. Stone are working together, and there's a bit of our first breakthrough, which is that they see, after laborious analysis... There are little flecks of green in this gray object. So obviously there's some different piece of matter, which is maybe our object. They've been trying to isolate this thing because if you isolate it, you can test it. Now here's a moment that is infuriating to me. Dr. Levitt, as you mentioned, is chafing against these rules. I think she wants to move a little bit more quickly or make some assumptions in order to move the work forward. Mm -hmm rely on the input that they have and dr stone thumps her on the head and talks about this thing your brain is the best computer Mm -hmm. now if someone thumped you on the head for any reason i think you would punch them in the face as i would you would be the only person i would let do that and even if you were doing it in that condescending context we would have a problem to me 
He does it because she's a woman. He would not do it to a man. None of the male characters would receive that treatment. I think. Do you think I'm wildly off base? Do you think I'm reading too much in to these cues that I see? No, based on everything else we've seen throughout the film up to now, I don't think so. The only other time I can think of it happening is on a Chappelle show skit. (laughs) (laughs) And you audibly hear the audience gasp when that character does it. That's how much of a violation it feels like. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it is very specifically tied to the amount of respect I have for you, and that is in turn tied to her gender in this case. Now, this is set up to take place over four days. Does it seem like four days is enough time to thwart a potential global catastrophe? Because think about how much time... I would hope an hour is enough, but that's unrealistic. Just in realistic terms, polio took longer than 96 hours. HIV, etc., etc. Things we still haven't come up with cures for. So four days to formulate a solution for a threat that comes from outside of our solar system, perhaps, does not seem like enough time on the clock to take care of this problem. Yes, but... Okay. (laughs) The world is set up in which they're supposed to get less sleep. They're drinking these proteins and their own nutrition. It's established that all of these extra technological marvels have happened that we, the public, don't know anything about to allow them to be able to focus solely on this thing. They're supposed to be top of their field. It's our best minds at work on this. And I would hope that they would be able to figure this out quickly. You don't want to think about this thing lasting and spreading to town, to town, to town. So get on it. But no, it doesn't seem particularly realistic. You do want to think about it, though, right? Because that's the scary part. That's the part that gives you that feeling in the pit of your stomach. That's partially why you've come along for this ride. Yes, but I don't want to be in the Piedmont-adjacent town waiting for them to figure it out. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to mention in relation to the tests that they're running and the observations they are making is that Dr. Stone pulls a classic Erica Long moment. Oh, really? Right here in that the first time that the thing shows movement and growth, he's doing something completely different. I do that all the time. I just did one the other day and I forgot to tell you. I can't even remember what it was now. It was something gigantic. Yeah. You literally... I, I don't know how to explain it to the people enough. It's inexplicable. Somehow, in the course of watching whatever it is we would be watching, the pivotal moment, if we were watching Empire Strikes Back, for instance, the moment that he says, Luke, I am your father, you would have dropped your milk duds and been over to pick them up. Definitely. What did I miss? Yep. Every single time. And you... everything. Every day. Daily. Daily. <laughs> if there was any way that you could monetize that skill i guess it's called the odd look over there principle i'm i'm looking elsewhere i've stood up or i've turned around or the dog sticks his behind in my face (laughs) at any given moment and something happens turn it into a lovable character quirk and make it like a jacques tati thing or mr bean you didn't miss everything though there are pivotal things that begin to happen where things start to break down there are 400 things (laughs) happening so i think i missed some things but anyway yes this is the point in a lot of michael Crichton stuff where as you mentioned things start to break down we hit sort of our high point and then this is where we're on the tail end rushing towards the conclusion there are a lot of things that happen in this sequence 
that don't ultimately make any difference? Mm, they make a difference, but they do illustrate the point you're talking about with Crichton. The things I think you're talking about in particular here are the plane crash and the paper jam that almost causes the apocalypse. Yes. They still get resolved. We still figure them out. Things don't hinge on these elements. But they do illustrate at least the paper jam thing. The thing I was saying about is this pro-science or anti-science? Because that happens and the town does not get obliterated. It happens because... Someone is so specialized, they essentially can't see the forest for the trees. You have mm. a technician that is focused on one thing and doesn't think, oh, a little bit of paper got in here, and this is why this machine is breaking down. They're looking for complex solutions mm -hmm. to a simple problem. Well, in addition to that, it also prevents them from carrying out the order that Stone would have given to drop the bomb. So we see that this machine screwing up saved the day. Because they've discovered that Andromeda, which is now what they call this thing, would proliferate if it was bombarded with nuclear energy. So not dropping the bomb has literally saved the world. And so it has illustrated to us yet again, maybe it shouldn't all be left up to the scientists. Because they would have made a number of incorrect decisions that are irreversible and globally catastrophic in this case. And the only reason it didn't happen is because... A piece of dot matrix printer paper got stuck so a bell couldn't ring. I think at this point I'm drowning in data, okay. essentially, and my problem with the ending, mm -hmm. which renders a lot of this moot. I do love the movie, but you are right. The ending is the one thing that lets me down. Fortunately, it only takes two minutes, and I still get to enjoy all of that yes. serene isolation and the beautiful production design for an hour and 50 minutes up until then. But you're right. The ending drops the ball for me, too. It's like the first two Harry Potter books where Harry wakes up and finds out how everything's gotten saved. <laughs> but in anyway, sorry. There is one thing I do want to talk about okay. before we move on to the fourth day, okay. which is another of my harping on the examples of how the genders are treated differently. Dr. Levitt is the person who is assigned to look at the samples and test them against growth possibilities. A red flashing light happens during one of these tests, and it sets off her epilepsy, which apparently before now she hasn't disclosed, mm -hmm. though I don't even know how that's possible given how clearances work, but she has absence epilepsy. So she stops and doesn't know that she has stopped. The tests have continued, and when she regains her normal level of consciousness, she's clearly missed something but she doesn't say anything about it. But why does it have to be the female who makes the mistake? Well, that is a much larger question that I wanted to ask. Why, of all the characters that they could have made a woman, did they choose to change Levitt from a man to a woman? Why not Hall? Why not Stone? Why not Dutton? I'm assuming not Hall for the obvious reason that it would obliterate the entire odd man hypothesis that this story has rested on. Mm -hmm. Also you would be presenting an image of liberated, sexual, what would probably be portrayed as promiscuous woman in that circumstance. If she behaved the way he behaved, then you have a whole lot of other stuff coming into play that would make that character unpalatable for a 1971 audience. And not Dr. Stone, because they're not going to put a female scientist in charge of the team. 
and not Dr. Dutton because we don't want to see any old ladies. That's the one that I would quibble over. I think they would put a Dutton equivalent. I think, in fact, my argument is that she is the flip side of the Dutton coin. I don't think that they would put, I'm guessing, 60s year old person you think that's re- you think that's reasonable i think they would still do it i mean inter- i'm asking about the age sorry oh right that he's in his 60s right i don't think that they would put a female scientist in her 60s and expect that same level of respect even though that level is goes back and forth i don't think they would buy it they would just simply look at it as past her prime well i would point to what might be an outlier, but still an example from 20 years, 30 years previous that we did, I Walked With a Zombie. That had the matriarchal character in it. That was the most knowledgeable person on the island. Yes, but not a doctor. But portrayed as being even more efficient and effective than the doctor. And she's still the one, though, that goes back on her training and falls into superstition at a key point. So that's problematic, too. That's problematic, but they do invest her with the most responsibility, and up until all of that comes apart at the end, to us, she seems like the most together character, and she carries it throughout. So I don't think that they would necessarily have avoided an older woman for that specific reason. I still disagree. I think that's an outlier, and that's part of the reason why I chose it, and part of the reason I respond to that character so much, because you don't see that character in so many other things. So I just, I don't think that they would do that. It would be somebody's grandma to them. It is a legitimate point you're making because right now a ton of them do not spring to mind from that time period. And I'm sure we're missing something, but I think because we can't immediately think of, oh yeah, this other character, I think that that goes along with what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. really. But, you know, that could be way off base. Okay, well we're about to move on to day four, but there was one thing that I wanted to bring up here that still plays into my pro-science, anti-science thing, in that while they are analyzing this germ and its growth and its activity, they say, without chemical reactions, there can't be life. And it occurred to me that you are thinking strictly Earth-centric. Absolutely. Going back to the whole idea of the proteins Mm -hmm. and the environment that it would react in, definitely all Earth-based. For a scientist who is assigned to address this problem, you are still thinking in a fairly limited scope because it all comes down to for us Mm carbon-based which again is just this just this life that we have and yet when we get to the end (laughs) the way the problem is solved is completely tied to humanity but we'll get there okay okay take us through day four we're officially fourth day our last day i'm going to summarize a little bit of this because we're really hurtling towards the end at this point Would you say, though, that this movie hurdles at any point? I guess in the sequence when he is trying to disarm the bomb. They hurdle for five seconds, and then we're done. (laughs) But no. Up until then, the big issues are questioning Dr. Levitt's no-growth result. They decide to question that. They don't take her word for it. So they do discover the fact that you mentioned earlier, which is that Andromeda would grow in the environment of this nuclear blast. Mm -hmm. So we cannot let that happen. The next big deal is that they discover 
a biological warfare simulation and put the pieces together and realized that wildfire, this entire thing they've been working on, was essentially built for germ warfare. And that SCOOP, which is the project that found this germ, Mm -hmm. it was to find new biological weapons in space. So as one character says, we did it to ourselves. We have this question now of, at least for some of the characters, what did they know and when did they know it? Yes. In the meantime, we've got two big things that happen. One, which is that Dr. Dutton is trapped with the germ. Now, his getting trapped accelerates the need to figure out why we have two survivors. So if they survived, how can we make sure that Dr. Dutton can survive? They figure out it's about pH levels and regulating oxygen. The second big issue that happens is that Dr. Levitt has another episode with her epilepsy, this time in a hallway. She has a seizure at this point, and so other people in the team and in the facility interpret this as she's got the germ. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a female staff member who says this. She's the one freaking out. Hysteria. Hysteria. Ladies, am I right? It is telling, though, that regardless of gender, all of these scientists, which I assume are the only people populating this level, since it's the cleanest, most decontaminated level of the facility, scientists running. No one stopping to help. No one doing anything except trying to save themselves. And further, as Dr. Hall figures out, no, it's epilepsy, we have something that can save her. It's the nurse who initially avoids giving her the dose because she still thinks maybe it's the germ. She does do it, but it's these women putting up these obstructionist barriers. Now, all of that gets settled. Everybody's fine. Good thing none of them are holding that key. Right. (laughs) They again talk about Dr. Levitt outside of her hearing and wonder why she didn't disclose that she had epilepsy. And it's Dr. Stone who talks about the stigma that she likely would have faced if she had done it. And he says, it's like the Middle Ages, which to me is rich when you think about everything else that happens Mm. in this film. But anyway, so moving on from there, we have a gasket leak that sets off the self-destruct five-minute deadline to save this facility. All the lights are going off. All the noises are going off. This is the one moment where Dr. Hall doesn't know where he is in the facility. They're the furthest away from this substation where they can turn the key and save the whole place. He's got to do his laser dodge to try to get to this core. Right. He climbs through the center column of the facility, which is patrolled by the gorillas from Congo with laser guns on their heads. Definitely. Sharks with opposable thumbs. Or chasing him at the same time. Who knows? Everything is out to get him, to stop him from getting to the core. But surprise, he's supposed to be the odd man. All of this is completely undercut because he has to be told to go do the key. There's no decision that has to be made. They know what the right decision is. All of them do. So he never actually has to employ that single man superlative reasoning in order to decide to save everybody because it's a given. That's all dashed out the window. He does turn the key with eight seconds to spare. Do you want to describe what the final solution for Andromeda is? Which comes upon us almost immediately once we get to this section. And like the Harry Potter early books analogy, it's told to us. Yes. 
Hall wakes up from his laser coma <laughs> to discover that Andromeda has proliferated in the atmosphere, drifted out, mutated, fallen into the Pacific Ocean, where it has been neutralized by salt water. The end. The end. PH, <laughs> save the day. It was extremely unsatisfying for me. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that I enjoy about it is the fact that it is salt water that does it because of the extended metaphor that humanity in general is what defeats the thing. Because salt water is essentially the exact same chemical composition as the human body. And so therefore, I like that idea. I don't like how they implement it necessarily. I don't like how pat it is, but I do like the image that the essence of humanity is what was able to defeat the thing regardless of our scientific knowledge, regardless of all the things that we went through. The thing you mentioned about Crichton, that how ultimately the man-made things are going to fail, and it is our nature that won rather than our toil, rather than our wisdom. I like that part of it. Something about that appeals to me. I agree and disagree. I didn't think about the extended metaphor about the salinity of our body. I was thinking more that it's nature that saves the day. Mm -hmm. They didn't drop it into a man-made pole. Well, that's where we came from. We crawled out of that. True. Okay. Our chemical composition is essentially the concentration that you find in seawater. I think you put more thought into it than Michael Crichton did. <laughs> At least this part. But could yes, be wrong. the end. Definitely, the end. Done, we're done. But, not quite. Because Dr. Stone is meeting with the officials in Washington, and he gets to put that last, the end, question mark. Mm -hmm. We know other forms of life exist. What do we do? Indeed, what do we do? Okay, so we're at the end. We've gone through all of this. I think you were saying you were unticking boxes as you went. What about it? that you should have liked got undone. This is from the New York Times about the works of Michael Crichton. Okay. These books thrive on yarn spinning, but they also take immense delight in the inner workings of things as opposed to people, women especially. Mm -hmm. It ultimately really bothers me to get so invested in the process and have that completely undercut. Mm -hmm. For example... He excels at making a very big deal about structure or some very specific thesis, like the odd man theory in this, or like chaos theory in the book Jurassic Park. Okay. And it makes for a lot of tension and adherence to the timeline, which I enjoy. And then it just gets jettisoned in the final act. So ultimately, it makes me feel like, why was I on this tightrope in the first place? What was it all for? I'm thinking about... The things that both of us enjoy, the slowness and the attention to technical detail. I would prefer if we just removed all dialogue. Hmm. That's interesting, actually, that you say that. I want the visuals and the sound. I hadn't thought about that as a potential, but you could do this thing with no dialogue at all. And to me, at least, that would be fascinating. Agreed. That's why I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. And if we took You're out Dr. Hall. You're a genius. I want to read one last excerpt. Okay. This was from the New York Times review of the film at the time. Okay. This is a little bit long, so bear with me. Is this Bosley Crowther? <laughs> no. Crichton put his novel together as if from a collection of note cards, a story outline beefed up with a lot of semi-scientific data. 
Wise preserves the impoverished positivism of Crichton's method, even to dividing his screen in a dull bid for informational range. I disagree with that part. But necessarily assigns most of it to his actors. The result is that, except for an odd 30 seconds here and there for individualization, not characterization, everybody delivers exposition right up to and through the last lines of the film. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm thinking, cut the dialogue. It is exposition heavy. And prior to you saying that, I would have said, and it has to be. But now I'm thinking of a really fun experimental version of this, which is completely free of exposition. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, I was thinking about speaking of when it was released and the response to it. Nothing is made in a vacuum, obviously. We're post-Kennedy assassination, but we're pre-Watergate. We are beginning to foster a distrust in the government, and we have all of these social movements that are really beginning to move forward and move into mainstream consciousness. Women's movement, civil rights movement, all of that stuff is very high profile and very incendiary. And literally incendiary when we talk about Vietnam going on. Right. And so we have a very specific type of paranoia, it feels like. And it made me think, have we ever not lived in a paranoiac age? It relates specifically to your response to it. As soon as we turned it off, you said something very specific that made me write this down about how, as a woman, you were specifically made paranoid by it. Am I imagining all of these very specific instances dotted throughout this of women being the weak characters, the superstitious characters, the people who make mistakes, the people who are hit on, over-sexualized, under-sexualized, non-sexualized, whatever. Am I imagining all this? Because to me, it seems like the most glaring thing in the world. But am I living inside the world where I'm made to think, no, you're just imagining all of it Mm -hmm. in order to keep me in my place? Or am I just overblowing things? Well, it's the same problem that we run into with something like I Walked With a Zombie, to go back to that again, where... In the case of I Walked With a Zombie, you've got a lot of progressive ideas juxtaposed with really troubling presentations. You can't judge a movie from 1941 or 1971 by the same standards you would a movie made in 2017. That does not mean, however, that we cannot recognize that those things are in there, and it is perfectly legitimate to be made to feel that way by them. It's just that for a contemporary audience... It might have just gone completely over their heads. I wrote down at one point, was there any time, specifically in relation to things Dr. Hall does and says, is there any time where this wasn't considered gross? But maybe not. I don't know. Everything's body 1970s hospital (laughs) for this guy. Carry on Andromeda's dream. It also came specifically talking about timeline and context for us. After we watched I Am Not Your Negro, Mm -hmm. and I don't mean to liken the experiences, it's just something James Baldwin says that has been in my mind since then, talking about how segregation creates paranoia Mm -hmm. in your mind because you are made to think that you don't exist in the world. So every time Dr. Levitt is segregated from the other scientists, talked about behind her back, treated physically different, treated emotionally different... Is she not being 
segregated and therefore made to think that she doesn't have a place. So she's the person who has had to fight through these things we imagine throughout her professional life. And so then I view them and have I been segregated and I know that I have been, but the rest of the world hasn't caught on to that? Or it's again so established that this is just the world we live in. Anytime your radar goes off, no, it's just you. Well, that makes me think of something else now that you see that. It's an interesting question, I think, in that, in the book, in which Levitt is a male, does he have these same character traits? Did they just take that dialogue verbatim and put it into a female character? Because now that you've said all these things about it generates a legitimate paranoia and I'm always trying to figure out where my place is and if I have one, of all the characters who have a right to behave like she does, who have a right to be hostile, no one has earned that more than she has, having gone through all those things, whereas if they kept the character a male, it just seems like a crank with no motivation now. Yes. I don't have anything more profound to say. I think okay. you said it all. Okay. We have to go read it, I guess, and mm -hmm. do a more in-depth analysis. I think it's a fascinating point. So after having gone through it in this level of detail and these questions and why you love it so much mm. and problems with it. Why did you choose it? For a couple of specific reasons. One, yes, I do love it that much, still love it that much, even after we've dissected it a little bit. It's obviously not a perfect film, but it's more about a mood for me. I love the atmosphere of 98% of it. I love it slow. I love things quiet. I love the meditative nature I love the design. I love the look of the machinery. I love everything about all of the sensations that it gives me. Not necessarily how intellectually probing it is. So there's that. On the intellectual side, I like the friction that it sets up in my mind between is this pro-science or is this anti-science? Because multiple instances, scientists fail. Like scientists do a lot when you experiment Frequently, those things don't go the way you think they will. Einstein did not come up with a theory of relativity on the first try. So it shows that process manages to make scientists the heroes, but still leaves room for doubt if we know as much as we think we know. There's that feet of clay thing in terms of science and how far it can take us that I like. And the last thing is that just a couple weeks ago, we went to the Johnson Space Center, which was a blast. If you are a fan of space and science or any of those things and you've never been to NASA, you need to go. We got to see Mission Control. We got to sit in the dignitary booth and view the room that houses the equipment that put Apollo on the moon. It's fascinating. I have to jump in for one second. This was the thing I was trying to remember that I missed most recently. Mm -hmm. At some point, I blanked out for a second or turned my head and the docent who was describing the history of mission control was naming through people who would come to sit in that area that mm -hmm. we'd been sitting in those actual seats and he said one name in the point where I blanked and everyone burst out laughing and practically started clapping and I thought oh, crap who was who was that one person so I missed something so once again maybe it was Jesus I don't know everybody <laughs> freaked out point is I didn't hear what it was Willard Scott or Queen Elizabeth or someone. Somebody. Anyway, it's fascinating. It and is. I loved, like I do in this film, the look of that machinery 
circa late 60s, early 70s, it's so flabbergasting to think of what those engineers and the human mind can do with technology that is fairly limited. It was basically mathematics that put us on the moon because you're looking at a room with rotary telephones and 64K of RAM. Yes, not an exaggeration. That's what it was. That's what got us to the moon. So that's the other reason I chose it. I'm still really buzzing somewhat from having gone to NASA, and this probably gives me the most of that feeling in terms of the time period and the technology and the presentation of science as crucial. That's the other reason. Now, much like last episode, Desperately Seeking Susan, I think we are having a similar experience where there are things you like about it, but you would not have necessarily chosen it for an episode. I would definitely not have chosen it. I don't really want to watch it again. Now, that makes it sound like I have some sort of larger antipathy towards it. I don't. I watched it on my own maybe a year before we sat down to watch it for the show. I didn't remember anything about it. <laughs> it's just unremarkable to It's you. unremarkable, and I'm specifically going over the things that frustrate me. Right. Now, I'm not sitting there watching it seething. It's not like that at mm. all. I just don't really care that much, gotcha. I guess. I will say, however, I don't have the white-hot burning hatred of a thousand suns for anyone in this film like you do for Aiden Quinn. Let's not get into that again. Okay, calm down. instead of, I will say no one in this film wore a stupid hat like that. Anyway, let's get to... Dr. Hall's come over, trying to pretend like he's not losing his hair? Yeah, right. Instead of going on about one that you didn't necessarily like, how about one that you do like a lot? Do you have a recommendation? I do. I was initially thinking about all these odd tangents because Arthur Hill and Kate Reed have a really interesting connection theater-wise to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Mm -hmm. but I set all of that aside, and I stuck more with the quote-unquote techno-thriller genre, and I came (laughs) up with one of my all-time favorites. I love watching this thing. To me, it is 500 times better than The Andromeda Strain, which is Sneakers. (laughs) From 1992. I say that with no sarcasm, unabashedly. Um, I don't know what this word better that you're using oh, is supposed to mean. Superlative? Okay. Sneakers. Sneakers. Don't you mean hackers? No. Sneakers. Okay. Screw you. Anyway, directed by Phil Alden Robinson with Robert Redford, Ben Kingsley, River Phoenix, my favorite. Dan Aykroyd, Sidney Poitier, Mary McDonald, and David Strathairn. This movie has everybody. It does. <laughs> it's a great cast. It's about a security pro, haunted and running from his past, who is faced with it when he is tasked to steal or retrieve a very important item. I love this movie when I saw it in the theater multiple times. <laughs> I love it when you got me the DVD of it because I had it on VHS before. I love it every time I watch it. For me, it is a puzzle that works. Okay. No pat ending. No drops off the table in the last 10 minutes. No, they've got to go through all the steps and earn everything and work together as a team. And it's super fun and they do Scrabble in it and River Phoenix is in it. Okay. And I love it. Clearly. I could have chosen the net, I guess. <laughs> but Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you could have. (laughs) How about you? I chose another plague movie with a ticking clock. 
I chose Panic in the Streets from 1950, directed by Elia Kazan, starring Richard Widmark, Paul Douglas, Barbara Bel Geddes, Jack Palance, and Zero Mostel at his sweatiest. I love Zero Mostel so much. Is that his sweatiest? Uh, He's pretty sweaty and everything. I don't know. He's he's pretty sweaty because it's set in New Orleans. True. On the waterfront. It does have to work for him. It takes two of my favorite genres, film noir and the plague film, and crams them together. And it's super tense and exciting. It's about a murder victim that's found on the docks of New Orleans, and it's determined that he is a carrier of pneumonic plague. They have 48 hours, basically, to solve this puzzle and save New Orleans and possibly the world beyond. It's got a great give and take as you've got two flip sides of the coin. You've got a pair of the bad guys and a pair of the good guys that their interchanges with each other are really fun and tense. Richard Widmark and Paul Douglas on the health officer police investigator side, and then Jack Palance and Zero Mostel on the gangster side, not knowing that they are potentially infected. And it's got a final chase sequence through a warehouse and across the wharf that is almost German expressionist in terms of how much shadow and slanted angles and menace there is in every shadow. It makes the best use of location shooting of any film I may have ever seen. It squeezes every ounce of nuance out of New Orleans, and Kazan called it the only perfect film he ever made. And I agree, it's one of my five-star. We'll eventually get to do an episode about it on here, but for now, in conjunction with this plague film, I recommend Panic in the Streets. We've got Sneakers and Panic in the Streets, Put those together, best weekend of movies you can come up with. And that brings us to the end of episode 43. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our name in either one of those places. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show since the last time. Grandma June. Grindhouse Dave, Travis Trudell, Craig Eastman, and the gentleman at Fuds on Film. They just did a great two-part retrospective on Miyazaki. And I'm going to specifically go back and listen to my favorite episode of theirs, which is the Disaster Film episode (laughs) from last summer. You only like it because your name's in it. No. I like it in addition because of that, but it's the Michael Caine impressions. Okay. That's the best part. Well, if you are a Studio Ghibli fan like we are, you should check out their latest pair of episodes where they go through the catalog of Hayao Miyazaki. It's pretty fun. Doug McCambridge at the podcast Good Times Great Movies. Brian Sauer, who was kind enough to invite me to do a Film Discoveries of 2016 list that I always love to do. He runs the website Rupert Pupkin Speaks, and you can find that list over there. In addition with tons of other people's Super cool list. It's one of my favorite things on the web. I always learn something from everybody's list that they put up. It's one of my sources that I go to year in and year out to find out about cool stuff. Eric Parkinson at the podcast This Must Be The Place. Jeff Duncanson. Leanne Kubich. Mike Scharf. And Jane Sankner. Thanks to everybody. We really appreciate you spreading the word about the show. We don't pay for any advertisement, so word of mouth is the only way it gets out there. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or you can find us via just about any podcatcher out there. It's been a while since we've gotten a review, so if you have listened to the show and liked it and would like to go to that trouble, 
it helps us get in front of more people, and we would certainly appreciate it. I'm going to do one more plug okay. for my upcoming event. If you're going to be in the Austin area on March 20th, I am the guest programmer for Austin Film Society's History of Television event. I'm programming Murder, She Wrote. This is going to be a super fun night. I think so. So go to Austin Film Society's website to find out more details, including exact time, price, and location. And I hope to see you there. Admission is actually free. Perfect. So you've got no excuse. Come and hang out with us and see J.B. Fletcher take a bite out of crime. Is that her slogan? Is that the, <laughs> I think so. Her catchphrase? Yeah. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Oh.